The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Manya Lazarov now presents her lecture, Ancient Tales, Modern Lessons. So my name is Manya Lazarov and um, born and raised in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Bit cliche, right? Um, and obviously I'm living in a place called College Station, Texas. Anyone ever heard of it? Texas, absolutely. So usually when I'm, I'm, I'm anywhere and I introduce that I'm from Texas, they always say, oh, you're from Dallas. That's so nice. And I was like, no, no, three hours south. And they say, oh, you're, you're from Houston? Wow. I'm like, no, no, 100 miles northwest. So then they're like, oh, you live in Austin? And I'm like, no, no, two hours east, San Antonio? No, <laughs> three hours north. They're like, and then, then you get the blank stares. Like, wait. Where do you actually live? And I'm like, well, it's this charming little dot, centrally isolated, but within three hours, you're in four major American cities. And I'm sure you can guess why I'm there. That's right, we run a Chabad house on a campus, catering to the students, the faculty at Texas A&M University. As you can imagine, raising a Hasidic family of seven in a place at College Station is quite an adventure. I will say it was a bit of an adjustment, not gonna lie. I remember that first Purim, my son dressed up for Purim. And he put on jeans and a cowboy hat and boots and a plaid shirt. And he's like, Ma, no one knows I'm dressed up. And my husband and I said, oh boy, this, is, this kid has no clue where he's living, right? So College Station, just to kind of give you an understanding of what College Station is and the, the kind of vibe the city has. Um, we have an airport, indeed, on campus. It has two gates, um, one of which is actually operating. And the person who takes your ticket is also the person who took your luggage and may also be a student that interviewed you for their cultural exposure class. And is like, oh, Manya, nice to see you. Or where TSA tells you, where are you off to today, no kids? And I'm like, I don't actually know you. Like, this is a little too cozy for Brooklyn girl, right? But as you can imagine, there were meeting and greeting and connecting with tons of young people from all over. I definitely recall these moments where I'm like, Manya, you're not in Brooklyn anymore. One Sunday, so Texans, I see we have one Texan in the room, I know. Texans are, at, oh, two, where from? El Paso, neighbors. In Texas, that's neighbors. 12 hours for a bus, no big deal. So I recall one Sunday I was in the Dollar Tree. Got to get some, you know, stuff for the kids, you know, the stuff that you're going to throw out in 48 hours, so it doesn't matter. And we're there, and everyone is really friendly. So this lady in line says to me, she said, howdy. And I'm like, howdy. She's like, you know what I love about the Dollar Tree? And I'm like, you know, I really want to know what she loves about the Dollar Tree, obviously, right? So I'm like, sure, what do you love about the Dollar Tree? She's like, you know what I love? I love that I don't have to get dressed up like I do when I go to Walmart. And that is, in fact, the type of city I live in. We absolutely love it. But I have to tell you, like I said before, 
raising seven children, Hasidic children, in a city of College Station is not exactly the ideal fertile environment for that in a college campus. Your kids are going to be exposed to interesting things, and you need to give them a certain sense of confidence and identity and knowing who they are and what's important and what their values are. I, I will not forget the time a student on a Friday night came over to me and said, your son yelled at me. And I was like, you know, when you're like, what did the kid say? I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like getting ready to apologize, right? Clean it up, whatever happens. No, 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 I deserved it. I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, we were having a conversation about things that we probably shouldn't have been talking around there. Your son. And your son looked at us and said, Sam, when you came to this Chabad house, you would not say shut up around me. And I'm eight years old, and you just had a whole conversation about drugs in front of an eight-year-old. And I don't need to know those things. So as you can imagine, we got to really give them some serious tools. Not only do we need to give our children serious tools, we need to give ourselves serious tools. How on earth can we pick up, live there, and create not only an environment that's going to be rich and nourishing and nurturing for our own children, but for every single Jewish Aggie that walks through the doors. So they, in turn, can go and build their own beautiful Jewish homes. You know, growing up, growing up, there was a line I always heard. And it was a line that was saying that Torah is Torah Tchayim. It's a living Torah, right? You ever heard that word? That phrase, it's a living, vibrant, relevant Torah. And I think over our days here, we get to really see what that means. Well, for me, I had to go on a fascinating journey. Though I was born and raised learning Torah all my life, and knowing that in the word Torah, there is, in fact, the word teacher and guide. But how do I go from this Torah portion that we're reading or these biblical narratives that I've heard all my life to what tools, what living, real, vibrant tools can I take and put in my pocket and pull out on a Tuesday afternoon when nothing's going right? Or at least it seems that way. Because there are those days. Anyone had those days? Yes, thank you for making me feel a little. <laughs> we all know those days where everything is pulling us in multiple directions. We're not exactly feeling like we're succeeding. We're feeling maybe guilty, stressed, overwhelmed, the burdens of life, of everyday living, the ups and the downs. So today, I was hoping to explore two of those stories, two of those ancient stories which have such relevant, vibrant, practical, and real lessons for you and I in 2022. Because at the end of the day, when we look at these stories through the lens of Kabbalah and Hasidut, we can get such a depth, such a richness, that we could merge on into our Tuesday afternoon when everything is a mess and know how to navigate it. So these are stories that resonated so deeply with me that I'm hoping to share with you. So the first story, Joseph. You may have seen the Broadway show, Joseph in the Technicolor sweater, right, jacket? You may have heard this story growing up. It's a very fascinating story. Here's this young man, large family. Him and his siblings have some issues, okay? And they develop this fascinating plot 
to get rid of him. And we know he is sold as a slave to Egypt. So not only are there sibling rivalry, and is he rejected by his siblings who tried to, you know, first plan A was to get rid of him. Now plan B is we sold him into slavery. And we find such a fascinating story in the Torah. What we need to understand any time we're analyzing Torah text is that every single word that is written in the Torah is intentional, has multiple layers, and so much to teach us. So I always say when you look at the text and it seems off or the grammar is funny or something's interesting, what do you do? How do you peel away the layers and understand it deeper? So as we travel along Joseph's story, we find that he ends up in prison. And we know his boss's wife tried to trap him. It was not a pretty situation. And he's feeling really alone in prison. Again, a young man in a foreign land, rejected by his siblings, sold by his siblings, right? You can't think of more trauma than that, okay? You want to talk about someone who has issues? That's, 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 that's issues. And what do we find? In come new inmates. Two new inmates join the prison cell. Who? The winemaker, the bread maker. And you find something fascinating in the text. Joseph looks at them, and Joseph says, Madua penechem ra'im hayom. Why do you look, do your faces look so sad today? What's your story? Why do you look sad? Now, you could say, well, Joseph, listen, you're having a traumatic situation. You need to focus on me time. You need to wallow, lean into your emotions. You need to deal with everything that's coming your way. And Joseph says, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys look sad. Something's not right. Something is going on. And it could seem counterintuitive. But at that moment, they do unload and they do share their pain. And we know they tell their dreams that they had, and he interprets them. And that moment of stepping outside his own pain and sorrow, looking someone else in the eye and seeing what are they going through? What is their story? How can I help you? At that moment, that's the key to his salvation. I'll never forget, I once had a young student come to me. And she says to me, let's call her Sarah. And Sarah says, I don't know what to do. My boyfriend, you know, he's a bit depressed. I said, okay, I'm listening, you know, active listening. I'm trying to hear what she, what, where she's going, what is she actually, what is, what's going through her mind. She said, but the worst part of it, of all of this is, that his friend is more depressed and his friend keeps turning to him to get advice. And I just want my boyfriend to focus on himself and not spend time helping this other friend. I looked at her, I said, on a counterintuitive, I'm going to be counterintuitive here. I'm going to tell you the opposite. The more your boyfriend is able to help his friend, the gift it will give to him. And the truth is, we see that is the system that the Lubavitcher Rebbe set up. Every single one of us, wherever we are, whether in College Station, Texas, or El Paso, or Florida, we need to be able to look out, see others, see what they're going through, and say, how can I be of service to you? How can I bring light into your world? Everyone may remember, you may remember Passover 2022, 2021, sorry. 
No, it's 2020, right? 2020. Anyone remember Passover 2020? We all remember Passover 2020. I do. So our typical Passover prep is basically we're getting ready for seders for about 100 to 120 each night. It's a big production, but everyone's in the kitchen, the students are peeling, and they're chopping, and it's mass chaos, and the music is pumping, and it's a lot of fun. We know now no one's in the kitchen. It's COVID. It's the height of COVID. No one's allowed to be in the building. Most of our students are already home. I have all my children that are all over the world at home. And we have to make Seder kits to go. We decide as a, an offering to the community, we're going to pack up Seder kits. And we did an estimation. We ordered, I think, 35 kits. We felt that was an oversight between who in the community would want that and the students that went home. How many were going to focus on creating a Seder? So we ordered 35 to-go kits. Lo and behold, 67 orders come in. Now you could say, Manya, you make a Seder for 120. What is 67? Not at a time when you could not have anyone else come in and help. No cleaning help. No students rolling up their sleeves and peeling and chopping. You're at a time where every single lettuce had to be bagged. Every single egg needed to be put in a container, labeled instructions. It was a huge production. So our staff at Chabad consists of our, at that time, six children. And as you can imagine, our children rolled up their sleeves to get involved. And there was all that last minute chaos, the packing, the things. It was not our regular system of control C, control V. This is how we do Passover. This is, our, this is how we get these things done. It was a whole new operation. It was overwhelming. And I remember at one point, one of my daughters, our 12-year-olds are triplets. So she was 10 at the time. And she had it. And she said, why are we doing this? This is so much work. Are people going to know how hard we're working? Will they appreciate what we're doing? Are they going to have a Seder? Does anyone know how hard this is for us? Anyone ever had a meltdown like that? She was expressing real emotions. This is overwhelming. And I'll never forget, at that time, my 20-year-old looked at her, and he said to her, you're right. People may not know how hard you're working, and they may not appreciate it. And you know what? They may even eat it as a salad and not as a Seder. It's possible. But aren't you glad you're a giver? Isn't it a good thing to be giving? And at that moment, that lesson of giving to others, the mindset that the Rebbe imparted in all of us to look at ourselves as givers, to bring light into the world, was huge and so real and practical. But moving forward, Joseph's story continues. And it's really breathtaking. We know that he ends up climbing to power. And he ends up, the, you know, the second in command, saving the country. It's quite a, quite a story. And what happens in Parshat Vayigash, the reunion? The brothers are hungry. There is a famine. We know the story a little bit, right? And they're coming to food, get food. Now, they have not imagined that that young boy that they sold, that they thought was for sure gone, was the person they were meeting in power, who had the key to their life, 
Remember, they had not been so kind. And we find the most breathtaking, powerful sayings that Yosef goes on to share. He looks at his brothers once they realize, I know that you know that you know that I know exactly what's going on here. I know who you are. You know who I am. And he said to them, don't be upset. Don't be distraught. God wanted me to be down here before you to save you and to save humanity. It's not you who did this to me. You were acting, it was Hashem's will. Can you imagine the ability to look at those who are challenging us, who put us in really uncomfortable, difficult situations through that lens? That every single thing that happens to us, every single place we end up, and everything we own is part of our story. Our soul comes down into the world. It has a story. It has a journey. We don't know what that is. But life has a fascinating way of showing us. I'll never forget this moment. On campus, one of the things we do is matzo ball soup deliveries. I would say we deliver about 150 a year. Students are sick. You're alone in a dorm. You're away from home. It's a really good way to support a student feeling very lonely and not well. We all know when you're feeling sick, a nice bowl of hot matzo ball soup delivered to your door, it's a great hug. So it was one day, and there was a young girl who was quite popular, and, and, and everyone kind of was, you know, like that it person everyone's a little jealous of? Well, she, I was scrolling through social media, and I see on Facebook that she wrote she's not feeling well. So I offered to bring her a chicken matzo ball soup. And she says, yes. And I won't forget this because shortly after I had my triplets and then I wasn't able to go and just spend an hour dropping off chicken soup, okay? But I went and I dropped off the soup and we talked. We talked about her wallpaper, her furniture, her classes, her, her clothing. It wasn't a deep, meaningful, moving, emotional discussion. It was life. And after that period of time, she started coming to Chabad more frequently, got more comfortable, became more connected to the community. And it was, a, it was a turning point for her. Well, as her journey became more connected, she shared how, in fact, she had been dealing with a lot of very heavy personal challenges. And so one of the things I know is I'm not a psychologist. I'm a shlucha, but not a psychologist. And so I have a local therapist that I refer students out to, and sure enough, we had her see the therapist, and she really was able to get stronger and healthier. And she graduated and went on her way. Okay, seems like a regular average day, week, month in the life of a campus shlucha. Lo and behold, two years later, she came to visit. And it was a Friday night, and she got all emotional. She looks around the room, you and Rabbi saving lives over here. And I thought to myself, listen, it's a bit of drama, drama over here. It's a bit dramatic. It's a chicken matzo ball soup. It's a challah. It's, a, it's, it's gefilte fish. Yes, Jews are connecting to each other, to Judaism, to them, their souls, sure. You know, the way to a neshama takes many routes. Sometimes it's a person doing a mitzvah. Sometimes, sometimes it's learning a piece of Torah. And sometimes it's through the stomach. 
on campus most often, that's the, the gateway, is a nice Shabbat dinner. So I just kind of was a little dismissive. I said, listen, we're shluchim, we're not, you know, humanitarians, that if we weren't doing this, we'd be digging wells in Africa. I thank the Rebbe. It's just as simple. She said, no, no, no. You don't know. I said, no. Like, where is she going? Do you remember that night? I said, what night? She said, do you remember that night that you brought me the chicken soup? And I said, yeah, because like I said, it was a kind of a turning point in her relationship with her Jewish identity with Chabad. She said, you know, you don't know the full story. I said, What's, what are you talking about? She said, I had found out really heavy news about my life and my family. And I was so alone. I was so alone in the world. I had no one to talk to. And I actually decided I'm leaving. I'm leaving this world. I set the stage. I planned that night. I was going to say goodbye. And she described to me exactly the setting, the stage she had set. She said, and that night you came and you sat and you brought me soup and you talked. And I realized one thing, I am not alone. I'm not alone in this world. I have people who care. I cannot tell you what an impression that made on me that she shared that with me. We never know when going out on a limb, being there for someone else. I was meant to see that exact social media post on that exact moment at that exact time. I'm not a techie, but I know a little bit about algorithms and social media. It goes very fast. You can miss a post in a second. But there is no doubt that that young woman was meant to go on, build a beautiful Jewish home, have three beautiful Jewish children, marry a wonderful Jewish man, from one thing, Hashem put us exactly where we were meant to be. The thing that I saw, my soul, her soul, we were meant to meet. So we don't know what happens, why it happens, when it happens, but there's so much of a bigger picture going on here. And that is something that we really see from Yosef's story. He's telling his brothers, look, you can get angry, you could be distraught, but don't. This is part of Hashem's plan. And we know, we know the Baal Shem Tov teaches that even a leaf does not fall without it being determined where it's going to be and why it's there. The very famous story told of the leaf that was on the ground and this teaching this, Baal Shem Tov was teaching this, his student this powerful lesson. He said, well, this leaf, this, you're going to tell me the God up in heaven, the big Lord cares about this leaf. Like really everything happens for a reason. Yeah, everything. Lift up the leaf. And there's that little baby worm who was seeking a little bit of shade and a little bit of comfort and a little bit of protection. So if it's true for a worm, it's most certainly true for you and I. And I want to share a personal story. Our city is 100 miles from the closest kosher pizza shop, mikvah, and Jewish school. So as you can imagine, as you can imagine, raising children with Online school, homeschool, it's Kitsat Balagan. If anyone lived through the COVID, having all your kids home, and it's, it's a bit chaotic. And I remember one time my triplets were six years old and we drove to Florida. It's winter break. And we have an opportunity to get the cousins and spend time and friends and family. And something happened. My husband had left on birthright, drove me there, left on birthright to take 10 students to Israel. And it was 10 p.m. 
and my triplets, I was alone, and I suddenly got cornered. And let me tell you something, they ganged up on me, okay? They had realized they're six, their world is college students in a college town. They realized their cousin came home from school with a friend on Thursday, saw the school, the friend on Friday. On Shabbat, the friend came over to play, and on Sunday, they went for pizza and to the beach together. And it was Sunday night at 10 p.m., and they said, it is not fair. Why do we live where we live? We have no friends. What do you say? So I try all these methods of parenting, asking open-ended questions, and I say to them, well, why do you think we live where we live? One says, oh, I know, we got to be there for the students. We have a Chabad house, we're shluchim. And then the other one says, this is what I mean by ganged up, okay? Hear me out. It was one to three. The other one says, our cousins are shluchim also, and they live in a city with school and friends. Like, basically, nice try, lady. That's not going to work. So I said, well, I go to my next question. What would happen if we weren't there? Perfectly logic. Maybe empower them, maybe help them see. The other one says, so the next one says, Oh, if we weren't there, the students would have no Shabbat and no place to go. You're right, huh? And the other one says, ah, 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 ah. There are plenty of other people who could live there. We could live somewhere else. There are a lot of Chabadniks who would go on Shlichut and open a Chabad house anywhere in the world. So I was basically not winning. So I validated their feelings. 10 p.m., six, three six-year-olds, not very rational. I said, I hear you. I love you. It's tough. We'll talk. Good night. I give them hugs and kisses and fine. The next day, lo and behold, this was part two. They were not dropping it so soon. They said, Ma, yeah, we had a meeting. I'm like, oh, a meeting. Okay, they're used to meetings. People are always meetings. That's their world. There's always, always. A, the sorority girls are going to meeting. The fraternity guys are going to meeting. Chabad's having meetings. They're used to meetings. Meetings are normal. We had a meeting. And we decided in our meeting that we want to go to public school. Great thing for a Hasidic mom to hear, right? So I'm really working. Remember, I'm still alone. No husband to like, you know, good cop, bad cop, play it together. None of it. So I'm like, huh, trying to play it cool, right? Poker face. Public school. Hmm. What's that? Oh, no, 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 ma. Don't worry. Don't worry. A Jewish public school. So now I'm like, okay, first of all, they sensed exactly my feeling. They read between the lines really well. They knew exactly how I was actually feeling. And I said, what's a Jewish public school? And they said, you know, Ma, a Jewish school that's open to the public. Desks and chairs and a blackboard and a teacher. They, can't, they basically were not comfortable sitting around the table in pajamas anymore. And I will tell you, we took that seriously. We got them desks and chairs, and we took our living room and put up a blackboard because they needed to feel that they were heard. But how do I take kids and raise them like that? And I once got a phone call from a friend, a fellow shlucha, and she said, Manya, I feel so guilty. I feel terrible. My kids, there's no school, there's no friends. It's so overwhelming. I feel terrible for them. And I said to her, she says, don't you, don't you feel horrible for your kids? I said, no. You don't feel terrible for your children? No. Now she's thinking I'm a really bad human, right? <laughs> like, how could this person? I said, okay. Judaism teaches us, mysticism teaches us, that every soul, every neshama, ends up exactly where it is meant to be. 
like I said, the places we end up, the people we meet, the things we own, every single part of it is intentional. And I said to her, are you telling me that every soul in the world ended up where it was meant to be, except my children? I don't buy that. They're exactly where they're meant to be. And so when we live this Jewish value of our souls being a part of Hashem, coming down into this world, taking their own unique journey to exactly the places they're meant to be, the people we're meant to meet, the things that we own are meant to be ours. I remember we were house hunting and it was this house that was perfect and kids kept calling from camp, did we buy the house, are we moving, are we moving? And I said, a big idea that's so simple if we are meant to own this home, if we are meant to elevate the godly materialism of this home, the beams, these rafters are meant to have Shema set in this home, a kosher kitchen in this home, we will end up owning it. Because it's very big, but it's also very simple. Everything we own, the places we end up, the people we meet, we're all together for a long five-day weekend, you never know. Who, what, when, where, at this retreat itself. Many years ago, we had a self-proclaimed atheist college student who for three and a half years did not do one Jewish thing. Not Chabad, not Hillel, nothing. His friend in his final semester begs him, come, take Sinai scholars, you'll get money. And I remember my interview with him because this was once and unique. You know I'm an atheist. You're Jewish? Yeah. We love Jewish atheists. Come to class. And I remember he joined class, and he wasn't, uh, you know, at the end, he's like, this is nice. I'm not sure what it is. Then his friend says, hey, I'm going to D.C. to this five-day retreat. You want to come? Five-day retreat, D.C.? I've always wanted to go to D.C. Sure. And this young man, raised in a very assimilated home, spends five days at Sinai Scholars, and now he has a dilemma. He comes over to me, and he says, Manya, I met this girl, and I connected with this girl like I've never connected with anyone in my life. We talked all weekend long, every night. We just, I, I, I said, okay, so what's the problem? Like, I'm like so confused at this moment. Like, sounds pretty good. He's like, well, I'm dating this girl named Christy, uh-huh, back in College Station. Do I dump her for her? What do I do? And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're actually not dating anyone. You need to date yourself. You need to date David. You need to get to know who am I and what's important to me and where am I headed? Because if you're in a relationship but your soul is connected to someone else, you got a problem. Fast forward and David marries the beautiful Jewish girl that he met at this retreat. And as he, after his wedding, he sent a note to us saying, without Sinai scholars and without Chabad and without the JLI retreat, I would never have even known I could build a Jewish home. He was meant to be here. It's all bigger than us. We, the people we meet, the things that happen, it's so much more beyond us. So you can tell me, listen, Manya, that sounds great. That's really idealistic. But life is really rough. I have a lot of things coming at me. My external circumstances whether it's home, life, marriage, whatever it is, the world is going faster and faster and faster. We're being pulled in so many directions all the time. We can't catch a breath. 
the world. We're inundated with news, politics, whatever's going on in the world. There's just no, it seems so overwhelming. So Manya, that's nice that I'm where I'm meant to be and with who I'm meant to be, but, but like actually life is really rough and really challenging me. Enters the second ancient tale, the second narrative in the Torah that I find so tremendously empowering. Miriam. We know Miriam is born in a very dark time for the Jewish people. They're in Egypt. As a matter of fact, the time is so dark that her parents name her Miriam from the word mar, as in maror, bitter, reflecting this terrible, bitter exile that Miriam and the Jewish nation are thrown into. And we know that Miriam's parents separate. They're not gonna be married, they're not gonna have children, and her father, Amram, was a leader. And Miriam takes her personality, takes her name Mar, bitter, and she taps into something deeper. She challenges the status quo. She flips the narrative. What else did Miriam's name contain? The word Marie, which means to rebel. I mean, say Miriam, rebel, rebel. And we know her rebellion, her challenging the status quo. She, first of all, challenges Pharaoh. He says, kill the baby. Her and her mother, a midwife, she said, she stood up to Pharaoh. Her mother said, no, no, don't listen. She's just a kid. It's okay. We know she's saved. Then her father, who separates from her mother, she says to her father, you are worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh just wants to decree to kill the baby boys, and you will make sure there are no baby girls born. And her father says, hmm, you're a young child, but you have a point. And sure enough, he remarries and rejoins with his wife. And who is the baby that is born from that reunion? Moses, the one who leads the Jewish nation to freedom. Miriam herself, a prophetess, challenges the women and says, women, we will be exiled. We will leave. We will leave with miracles. Bring your packing. You're in a rush. It's a crisis. What do you grab? And Miriam says, make sure you grab your timbrels, your drums. Make sure you get your tambourines. We're going to need them. We're going to need to thank Hashem and praise Hashem. One second. Exile for many, many years. You're telling me there's a different way to look at this? You're telling me you have faith that we will be able to be free and praise and thank Hashem? How is that possible? And sure enough, the women follow her. And we know she leads them in song. As sure enough, there are miracles that happen. And Miriam's so inspirational to me because I truly believe and I've seen that all of us are have, going to have things that come our way. There's a fascinating story in 1963-69, there is the first African-American woman who's voted into Congress. And she is from none other than Brooklyn. Her name is Shirley Chisholm. And let's just say there were some racial political dynamics. And people wanted to put her in her place. She was very excited to take on issues that are related to big cities, bring some solutions, and sure enough, guess which committee she was assigned? The Agricultural Committee. And the title of the newspaper mocking her was saying, does a tree grow in Brooklyn? 
It was to put her in her place, to demote her. You think you, as the first African-American, are going to advance and make change? Go take care of the trees. Go take care of the agriculture. And she was honestly distraught. She felt shame. She felt bitterness. She felt terrible. Well, one day, she gets a phone call. And it's from the Lubavitcher Rebbe's office. And she's asked to come in to meet with the Rebbe. And this woman comes in to meet with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said to her, I heard you're upset. She, I'm not upset. I'm really, really broken. And she shares with the Rebbe how she feels. She knows this is a mockery. She knows exactly what's going on here. And she's really distraught. What do I know? And the Rebbe said, how incredible is your opportunity? There are mothers in New York, in Brooklyn, who can't feed their babies. There are farmers in the Midwest who have a surplus. Find a solution. You're exactly where you're meant to be. And sure enough, day one, day one in Congress, she meets Senator Bob Dole. And they're talking. And he starts sharing with her that he's in dealing with the farmers in the Midwest that have excess crop that are going to waste. They're wasting their crop. They're wasting their money. And it's a crisis. And she suddenly remembers what the Rebbe told her. Well, at her retirement party, she is actually the one who created what then becomes WIC, a government arm to help women, infant, and children from poverty with food. Food stamps, WIC, is actually her child, her brainchild from her work in Congress. And at her retirement, she says, if young moms in New York have food to feed their babies, it's thanks to a grand rabbi in Brooklyn who had vision, who had the ability to look at a situation differently and obviously inspired her to do the same. So often in life, we may have things that we see one way, an experience that we have that only feels like I'm, this is so overwhelming, this is no way it could turn out differently, I can't live this story in a different way. And the Rebbe was telling her, and Miriam was modeling for us, that even in the most bitter, dark moments of our lives, we can challenge that status quo, we could see things differently, and it starts obviously in our mind. There's a powerful line. Wherever a person's mindset is, that's where they are. The power of our mind, and we know that Hasidut teaches us that our minds can control our emotions. We can check in and align and work on how we feel and affect our emotions based on our intellect. But how do we do that? So I want to share with you another story. And this story is a bit more sensitive, but powerful nonetheless, and taught me so much about all those Torah lessons that I've maybe taken for granted all my life. There is a young sophomore at our university. And this young sophomore comes to me with, he needs to talk. He's got a situation. What's the situation? And he says, well, look, there's this really nice Jewish girl, Sophie. And I really kind of want to ask her out. So I'm like, so ask her out. 
Seems pretty good, right? He says, there's only one problem. What's the problem? I have not dated since high school. I'm like, okay. And suddenly he gets emotional. And he said, my first girlfriend was killed in a car accident. And I was so traumatized that I've not dated since. And I just don't feel like I have it in me. Well, through a lot of encouragement and support and love, he asks Sophie out. And they start to date. And it's going really well. And it's, they clicked. She tells her family about him. It's going really well. He seems happy. Sounds amazing. One morning, very early in the morning, we get a devastating phone call. Sophie and her mother were killed in a car accident. It was all over the news. It was a terrible accident. It shook our students to their core. They had never experienced death like this. It was an absolute tragedy, and we were worried, and we had to really think of how we can support our students, but the person we were most worried about was this young man. And we knew, God forbid, he's in class and finds out on the news, we don't know what will happen. And so we go to campus, and we pick him up, and we bring him to Chabad, and we tell him this devastating, life-shattering news. And he just looks at us, and he says, Nothing, just this. The weeks that follow were grueling. We could not leave him alone. He had to stay at Chabad. He slept over. We had to make sure he ate. We, our entire Chabadas became like a Sheva house. This was devastating. She was essential. She was my right hand. She delivered matzo soups, helped with dinners, taught my children. She was there every single day of the week. She was friends with everyone. A gift to the community, a bright, light and we start to discuss with him and our students what does Judaism believe about souls what does Judaism believe about our journey what does Judaism have to say about such terrible circumstances and he's hanging out Chabad more and he decides he's going to take on a mitzvah in her honor he's going to start to put on tefillin because she can no longer do mitzvot he's going to do for her and bit by bit this young man starts to grow and connect with his family, his people, his identity. His mother joins us for our Mom Sinai Scholars, and she told me, I have never seen my son so happy in his life as he starts to grow and learn and connect. And he explained to us one day, the first time I faced a tragedy, there was no explanation. Life happens. Oh, well, girlfriend's gone. The second time I had Judaism, I had Torah, I had clarity, I had an understanding that her soul was a gift. Our community was blessed. And this young man has gotten to see everything happens the way God planned it. Because following three years later, he's helping in the kitchen. Because as he got closer to Chabad, what happens, the closer you get to Chabad, the more you see the mechanics and you end up rolling up your sleeves. And anyone knows, you know, you've seen it serving, clearing. It's like a home. It's like a family, very Hamish. As a matter of fact, once or twice I hired waiters and my students get very offended. Like, what are they doing in our kitchen? Like, what's going on here? This is our space. Like, we, they're not comfortable. It's their Chabad house. And they're learning really what it means to build a Jewish home, right? And there are plenty of people who met around the table braiding challah together and are married and built beautiful Jewish homes. So, nothing like hands-on learning. 
Well, this young man is clearing the table in Rosh Hashanah. And another one of our students had a friend visiting from California who multiple times their flights got canceled and had COVID and then this and then at that. And they're clearing the table and he says, huh, who's this young lady? And they hit it off. And by the end of Rosh Hashanah, 48 hours later, my kids are saying, ma, do you see what's going on there? And everyone is going, what is going on there? And sure enough, he got married last year to this beautiful young lady that he met at Chabad many years later. What's the power of these stories? What is the power? of us taking a journey from the Torah back into our lives and constantly learning what these values teach us and how they can help us navigate. At the end of the day, things are going to happen. Life is going to take us on a journey. No one could have more trauma complaints and sit on the therapist's couch longer than Joseph and Miriam. They had plenty of reasons. They got plenty of issues plenty of generational trauma, personal trauma, right? I always tell students, when people say, oh, I have such issues, I say, you have issues? Ah, oh, Baruch Hashem, thank God, it means you're alive. Welcome to life. But how we navigate them is really remembering who we are, where we find ourselves. We are not victims of our circumstances. Hashem put our souls into our bodies, sent us into this world for a certain amount of time long, hopefully healthy, wonderful, robust, incredible years, God willing. And what can we do about that? What do we do about what happens to us, the circumstances surrounding us? And I have to tell you, we have way more to study. We only talked about two characters, two stories, and we did the, the abridged version. But the more we plug into Torah, the more we nourish and nurture our soul with these stories, the more we actually have tools for a Tuesday afternoon when things really don't seem like they're going the way they need to or the way we hope they will. And when we live that way, we can share those values, not just with ourselves, but with all those we meet and allow all those we meet to be inspired and what happens when we share with others, we gain. I have to tell you something. I have not mastered these skills, but I know they're there. They're not tools that I can pull out every time things are going wrong, but they're gifts that Judaism and Torah gives us. And the more we're able to tap into them and use them, the more they're able to help us in our day-to-day -day life, bring our own light, our own soul power to the world and share that light with others. Thank you. Any questions or anything anyone wants to ask or any questions that anyone has or no? Any curiosity? Go ahead. The question was when, when people say everything that happens is random and there is no such thing as faith, it's not, faith is not something you can sell, ingest, or, or buy, right? First of all, we have to know as Jews, we are mamin and b'nai mamin and we actually have within our you want to talk about generational trauma? We also have generational DNA. We also have powerful, positive tools that are a part of us. We are believers, the sons of believers. Are, it's actually in our DNA. The work begins to unearth that, tap into that, and pull that energy from within, from in our soul power, into our day-to-day -day lives. And that takes work. That takes learning. That takes having a good mentor. That takes a lot of other ways to do so. But in fact, we have it within so I'm not going to hit someone over the head with, you must be a believer, have faith. No. But when we share stories and when we look at moments in our lives that things didn't seem 
we all have moments where we think things are going a certain way for a reason and then we find out the rest of the story. So when we tap into those, then it reinforces that message and we kind of learn, keep learning. We're, hey, we're five days of learning, right? Go ahead. You brought up a beautiful point. Um, what do we do about the fact that it, that sounds great that Joseph's like, sure, no problem, but what about free will? Like, we all have free will. And what about the fact of accountability? Like, his brothers at the end of the day did sell him, right? And they like, it wasn't exactly the most ideal brotherly loving situation. And gosh darn it, I'm using your words, are we giving them off the hook? So you really tap into something that's probably for another part two class. No, I'm serious, because I'm not, and I'm not um, dismissing your question. What you're really asking is the paradox between free will, bechira, and hashkacha pratis, divine providence. Where does one begin and one end? And it's really a deep philosophical paradox that in fact do coexist. I can never look at this young man and say, oh, she died for a reason, it's fine, you'll be fine. Never. I can never look at Joseph and say, oh, your brother sold you, it's not a big deal, it was for a reason, you'll find out one day. We can never look at someone else's pain and justify it, dismiss it, and say, but Joseph himself can say that. Now, Joseph obviously was a sage and a righteous soul, and he had perspective. My point is, there's a reason the Torah is sharing that part of the narrative. The Torah is sharing that part for you and I to be able to take that as a tool, put it in our pocket, and understand it. Pain happens. Everyone's going to experience pain. It's part of the human condition. Our souls coming into the world experience trauma. A soul arriving in the world, a spiritual, a celestial sphere, and arriving into a physical world is traumatic. Pain happens, trauma happens. Suffering, that's where the choice is. And it's deep work. And I would say, really, we have to have a whole chassidus. Kabbalah goes, you know, practical Kabbalah goes into a lot of deeper teachings to understand that interplay between those two really conflicting ideas. So find a local rabbi and say, I need to discuss with you hashkacha pratis, divine providence, and bechira, free will. Basically, you have more homework now. <laughs> Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.